Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the first and only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. It is my pleasure today to host Mona Ajar Halabi. She's the creator of a Facebook page, British Mandate, Jerusalemites Photo Library, and of the Palestine Ethnographic Society. She's also been collaborating to the interactive documentary, Jerusalem, We Are Here. Mona has also an upcoming book, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. Before we start our conversation with Mona, I would like to invite all of the listeners to join the Facebook page British Monday Jerusalemites Photo Library, as it is an amazing tool to look and stare at the pictures of Jerusalem throughout the Monday era. Mona, welcome, and thanks for being with us today. My first question is the same to all of the guests of Jerusalem Unplugged. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection to the city? My connection to Jerusalem is my mother. She is the conduit that led to my uh, passion for Jerusalem. I never lived in Jerusalem um, except for a year uh, when I was teaching at the Ramallah French School. And Otherwise, I only heard about Jerusalem from my mother's stories. And she was so passionate as a refugee who lost her home in 1948. She spoke about Jerusalem in such a lively and vivid way that I felt as though I had been there with her. So this was the beginning of my love affair with Jerusalem. Would you be able to share some of the stories that my mom, that your mom, Uh, told you about Jerusalem? Well, first of all, she talked about it with so much joy. Um, You know, many Palestinian refugees um, avoid talking about the past to their children and grandchildren because 
their past is um, filled with the sorrow of losing their homeland. And of course, my mother was terribly sorry and sad and, and mourning the loss of her home in Lower Ba'a in Jerusalem. But besides that sorrow, there was a very large component that was about the joy and the beauty of living in a multicultural pluralistic society where internationals mingled with natives, uh, languages, there were several languages spoken, there was culture, there was um, a lot of uh, activities that created a society that was rich in history. And my mother was a part of that. She attended the German colony Templar School uh, created by the Templars when they came from Stuttgart in, the, in 1869 to Palestine to start a community in Haifa and in Jerusalem. Her parents wanted her to have um, a, a progressive modern education. Her father, my grandfather, had studied at the University of Geneva in 1911. And uh, that was sort of, not, it wasn't unheard of, but it was very modern, you know, that he was able to, to get his education in social sciences in, uh, in Europe. And he chose Switzerland because he did not want to study in one of the colonizing countries. So he avoided the French and the British. Um, and uh, he chose for his three children an education in a German school because one, it was um, non-sectarian. It uh, was not a religious school. My grandfather was Muslim and my grandmother was Catholic, which also was a very unheard, unheard of thing in, in the Middle East in that period. And it's still something that's frowned upon to this day. Uh, but in 1918, my grandparents got married and were totally approved by both sides of the family. And my grandmother was eight years, uh, my grandfather's senior. So she was 38, he was 30 when they got married. Um, so you can see that there was just um, a great deal of uh, modern thinking, tolerant thinking, um, and they, they met and they fell in love and they were very much intellectuals who had common interests and ideologies. They were um, very much against the, um, the colonial powers, the British mandate. They were also very anti-Zionist and they instilled all these things in my mother. And some of her stories were about her education in a very, uh, very, very modern family. My grandfather uh, was a, the editor of uh, Al Hayat, a newspaper that was published a daily, that was published uh, in 1930, that started publishing in 1930. And at the dinner table with his wife and three children, he would bring up letters to the editor that were sent to him. And he would ask their opinion, which, you know, you don't often hear uh, fathers do, doing that necessarily. And whenever 
one of his kids would give their opinions, he would say, now, why do you think that? There was always the why. He wanted to understand uh, their critical thinking. And he encouraged a lot of that critical thinking, uh, the skills to defend your opinion and your perspective. So from hearing my mother telling me all these stories, I, I had a great sense about Jerusalem and its uh, urban intellectuals and its um, education system and my grandparents and the role they played in my mother's life. And of course, all of that was very, very exciting for me to hear about, it made me feel close to them. Often you hear of Jerusalem as and painted often by European scholars, um, this, this like city in the backwaters of the Ottoman Empire before, and then also of the British Empire when the British took over. But uh, what you channel through the memory of your mother shows a complete different setting, a different city from sort of the stereotypical uh, pictures that we get uh, of, of Jerusalem. And um, I really want to move toward, to your work uh, and the question of photography. In your work, you, uh, you looked at Jerusalem through, through photography, so through the collections of pictures. And I was wondering when, you, when you're gazing, when you're staring at that material, how does Jerusalem look like in black and white? Well, I like it in black and white more than in colors, to be honest with you. To me, it, it's the authentic Jerusalem because that's sort of frozen in time. It is the Jerusalem my mother grew up in. It was the, the Jerusalem that was multicultural and that um, was rich in history. Um, not that it's not rich in history now, but uh, it is different. Uh, and so, when I look at photographs, and I grew up uh, very fortunate to have uh, already a large collection of photographs because my mother's brother Afif was an avid photographer, amateur photographer. And uh, he took pictures of all of the picnics and gatherings and uh, family occasions, but but friends and, and public occasions. And when he had to leave Jerusalem because they were being driven out by the bombing in their neighborhood. He took all of his pictures and his camera and he documented his own Nakba unknowingly, of course. He photographed himself with my mother uh, at the bus station, waiting for the bus that was going to take them to Cairo. And that was the last time they were standing on Palestinian ground. Um, and all of those photographs, um, you know, depict a world that um, was documented by my uncle. And after that, I happened to marry a Palestinian who, whose father was an avid photographer. And so then I inherited a tremendous amount of, you know, pictures, um, tremendous number of pictures uh, of Jerusalem and all of the outings and, and family events that my husband's family um, experienced. And so I ended up with huge collections. 
And when I looked at the pictures, I could understand better the culture and the, the space and time. Um, and in 2014, I decided to research my mother's past so that I could write a book about her life in Jerusalem. And uh, I used a Facebook community page to share photographs. Um, and I entitled it British Mandate Jerusalemites Photo um, Library. And I, I chose that name because that is the period, more or less, the, the, the first half of the 20th century. Of course, I cover also photographs from the late Ottoman period. And um, I started it because I wanted to research my mother's story and um, make connections with other Palestinians who may have also experienced my mother or similar uh, stories. And it has become uh, not only a place for my own research, but also a gathering place. It has become a place where Palestinians in the diaspora have been able to connect with each other, with uncles and aunts and siblings. And um, it's been a, a source of pleasure for me to see that we are united, even if we are not standing on our land, that, that even at a distance, we, are, we can all feel connected. And of course, you know, pictures can tell a story better than, you know, a thousand words. And without my saying very much about that historic period, but, but instead by showing photographs and telling stories of people who lived during that period, I am also educating people as to the culture and the richness of that culture of Jerusalem. Because most people have an image of Palestinians, uh, which I understand is uh, totally valid. The, the pictures they've seen of Palestinian refugees uh, walking away from their raised villages, carrying a satchel of clothes, carrying their babies and running away from the bombing. Um, those pictures are real because 70% of, of Palestine was an agrarian society. But I think we people tend to forget that there were the urban centers like Jaffa and Jerusalem and Haifa being the three biggest, um, that there were urban Palestinians that lost a great deal. In Jerusalem alone, there's 50,000 uh, Palestinians who lived in West Jerusalem primarily who lost their properties and homes. And I think that by showing that I'm also reminding people and educating people uh, about the urban Palestinians. So photographs are very important in my own research of that world. I want to ask you something about feelings. I must about admit that, that I, I'm a, uh, you know, huge fan of your Facebook page. And whenever you publish something, I'm always opening all of the pictures. And in time, I start appreciating what those pictures are telling me beyond the professional interest to find something connected to the periods I'm working on. And I, I spend more and more time reading comments. And as you mentioned, people 
learn how to connect with each other, to provide information about uh, an individual, a shop, a building. Um, and it's fascinating how, you know, this uh, med social media tool brought people together. But my question is, is very personal. How do you feel in terms of personal feelings when you see all of these debates moving forward? When you bump into a picture that might be connected to your family or a face that is also familiar because it connects to the stories that your mom uh, told you? It is very, very gratifying. My feelings are, you know, really joyful. I It's like I'm meeting a dear old friend that I haven't seen for so many years, you know, even though most of the people I don't know. Uh, but some people are children or grandchildren of people my mother was friends with. And so there's the joy of connecting with um, her friends and her community. Um, it's almost vicariously enjoying what she had in, in Jerusalem. Um, I wasn't there to experience it firsthand, but I'm certainly experiencing it secondhand now through the, the generations that followed uh, and that are you know, scattered around the world. I want to dig a little bit into the pictures because you posted so far probably thousands of them. I was wondering if there's any particular story that stand out, stories that you felt uh, very passionate about, connected to those images? Um, because I'm an educator, a retired now, but um, I taught for 30 years and I trained teachers for 30 years. I feel uh, that a lot of the pictures that I've posted about schools in Jerusalem um, have meant a great deal to me because I, I wanted to, first of all, indirectly show that Palestinians, urban Palestinians, were very educated um, and that uh, their education really ended up helping them become the, the next generation of uh, um, em employees in either the British mandate government, the secretariat, or, or in other institutions that this foundation of um, education, which was primarily French or English, um, gave them a platform uh, and, as, and, they, and they were able to perform uh, in the diaspora after, after the British mandate ended and the Nekba occurred. So I, I think of education as being the, the, those pictures of schools that I've posted and people's stories around the schools meaning a great deal to me personally. Um, and then I, I enjoy writing about different families who have shared their stories with me. I mean, recently I put up the story of uh, Shukri Deeb and his wife, uh, Katingo Hanania. These are names of very, you know, illustrious uh, people, a family that is was well known and had roots in in Jerusalem and in in the business of uh, the business of Jerusalem as well. And um, it was a great joy to publish that story because a lot of the grandchildren of Shukri and Katingo 
connected with it and uh, I got most of the information from the, one of the granddaughters of uh, Shukri and Katingo. So to be able to, to put out the story of a family, um, I'm noticing that that appeals to people a great deal more than something a little, for instance, my most recent um, post was about the first landing of an airplane in Jerusalem. And it did not interest as many people because they wanted, they like real family stories and people stories. Mine was more, this one was more a story of a, a first and uh, about aviation. And of course they were French who landed there, not Palestinians, not the Arabs, but, but I noticed that people are less interested in something like that versus a family uh, from Jerusalem. But I like to have a little variety and put different things in. Well, I think uh, uh, this shows the interest for the human aspect of Jerusalem. Um, we know so much about buildings. We know so much about every single stone that has been placed and displaced, uh, particularly in the old city. And I think this is refreshing to see that people are more interested in the human aspect, individuals, peoples, families. And I think this is like, you know, a good uh, way of thinking about the memory of a city. Yes. To, to the extent that I really want to ask you, have you ever met any form of uh, opposition to your work, of criticism? Not directly. Um, I think that there are some comments that are political, which I immediately uh, delete, because I did say in a very direct way in my about section on the on the British Mandate Jerusalemites that I will not tolerate any political debate. There are other other you know pages on Facebook that love the political debate. I'm not interested in that. I think it is best to just show through pictures um, the culture and for us to look at the pictures as a form of uh, soci socialized, well, not socializing, but, but almost like a dissection, a social dissection of the society at that time. And uh, what did people wear? What, what vehicles did they have? What, uh, what did this mean symbolically? Um, and I've deleted a number of comments because people, even though I say that on my page, um, people still have reactions and, and want to disparage Israel, uh, which is, or Zionism, which is not something that I want to get involved in. This is not the purpose of the page. Uh, I think the, the message of the page is really the human social history of Jerusalem. And I think you are, you've been very innovative in this. I mean, as a professional historian, I know that we, certainly in the past, things are changing now, but there's been so much focus on the national struggle, the emerging conflict, uh, the politics, and often we... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory. But boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher got about the people and uh, you know the social history of Palestine and of Palestinians has been emerging only recently and, and I think your work really fits and more and more importantly provide a face uh, to Palestinians uh, to people that live there and as you mentioned earlier really experienced the Nakba first end and also recorded those moments so certainly that that's you know, very innovative. And, and I think uh, uh, we historians should, you should be really thankful of your work in that sense. Thank now, you. I want to ask you something because uh, it's connected to your work. A few years back, you published a very interesting article on the Jerusalem Quarterly where you discuss photography. And as you mentioned earlier, you talked about uh, in the article about these picnics, Jerusalemites leaving the the old city or the city center and going out. I was wondering if you can tell us about it. Uh, what was happening there? Why did people leave? What was this, uh, uh, you know, sort of love uh, for picnics? Well, it started with the fact, I guess, the Jerusalemites lived in the old city before they expanded outside of the walls. And it was a, a very crowded a uh, place to live surrounded by stones so there was there was very little greenery and um people wanted to get out of the city and they would go to Jericho and to Jaffa and um Jericho for the be- the beauty and the warmth um and the vegetation and Jaffa for the beach and and then um even when they started to move out of the old city and moved into the the new city the suburbs 
they continued on this tradition of going on outings. They brought their food with them and they sat, you know, on the ground or on the beach and they, they ate their food. And it wasn't sandwiches the way people think of uh, for picnics, but they brought actual pots of, of stuffed grape leaves, what are INAP, you know, and they, they would sit and eat actual meals that you would sit at the table, would have at the table. And so um, they, they loved, they've always loved the land. I mean, don't forget it's an agrarian society. Uh, the land meant a lot to them. And, and if you've been to Palestine, you know that there is a beauty to those terraced hills you know, with stones and olive wood uh, trees. And it's just uh, beautiful. So I can appreciate their love for that. And then they would get back to the city and go through their work or their studies and then look forward to the next outing. I was wondering if your mother mentioned and talked about these picnics, if there's some sort of uh, personal aspects or uh, anecdotes that you can link to your discussion of, uh, you know, outing, picnicking outside the city walls. Yes, my mother um, has many, I have many, many photos of my mother on those picnics um, with all of her friends. Uh, and yes, she she remembers very much the one where they, they went to um, Jericho and then hiked up to the Mount of Temptation. Uh, and up there, there was a, sort of a platform um, they brought with them a phonogram phonograph and then they brought records and they danced up there um, and she still remembers that with so much joy she loved music and sang a lot and so that picnic was sort of one that stood out in her mind and because it was in the early 40s when world war ii uh was uh, happening um private cars were not allowed in, you know, to circulate. And there was a curfew on private cars circulating. So all of the, not that young people had cars, but a few of them had their, could borrow their parents' cars. But that, that time when they went to Jericho, they rented a truck and they all sat in the back of the truck and there are a few pictures of them standing in the back of the truck. And they went up to Jericho with, with that truck um, and had this glorious, legendary picnic and dance party. Well, it's fascinating, given that uh, um, you probably heard of the story of uh, uh, a party that took place uh, at the Nebi Musa uh, sort of um, location, not far away from Jericho. Um, you know, many have criticized that uh, for various reasons, but certainly, you know, the story of your mom shows that uh, partying uh, outside, particularly music and food, was uh, uh, common even before. So we shouldn't be surprised of uh, youth and younger people going out and um, coming together. I want to stay and discuss, to, you know, a few things about your mother and obviously your upcoming book. You mentioned food. Um, and I was wondering if your mother ever talked about food to you and if there's any food that uh, left some recipes or flavors, colors, tastes. Uh, uh, food is very important in Jerusalem uh, in many ways uh, and also defines a specific cuisine of, of you know, Jerusalemites. And I was wondering if here 
there's something to add. I I would say my mother loved to cook and fed us very, very well. And her mother was a great cook as well. Um, my mother loved to make, for instance, mlochie, uh, which is uh, the jute plant. It's a kind of like a spinach plant, but uh, that you put in, uh, that you cook in broth and, and with chicken and pour over uh, rice. This was uh, one of uh, her favorite dishes, and she cooked that a lot. Stuffed grape leaves, stuffed uh, squash, stu stuffed eggplants, lots of stuffed vegetables. Um, and kubbe, uh, which is made with burgol and, um, and meat. Uh, and sometimes she would make the kubbe uh, with the leban with, in a sauce, in a soupy uh, yogurt uh, sauce and was very, very delicious. But you know, it, it's interesting, food was important, but my mother often talked about the food for the mind. And because she came from a family that was intellectual, you know, um, that was interested in the world of ideas, the food you put in your mouth was important, but to really be nurtured, you also needed the, the food that came from your, your mind and your ideas. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that cooking was, was by itself a huge thing the way it is for many Palestinian families. I think my mother's family put it on the same level as food for thought. You mentioned while talking about picnics, obviously food, but also music. And this is a very interesting aspect. Uh, are you aware of what music they were listening to? I mean, other probably than Um Kultun, which you know, was the star of the moment, but are you aware of other music, whether they were influenced by Western music or they preferred uh, uh, more Arabic music? If there was any particular radio station, for instance, they were listening to or you know, a song well, the radio, the major radio station was the Palestine Broadcasting Service, um, and they listened to that. But the, my uh, my mother and her two brothers belonged to the YMCA. My uncle Afif, whom I've mentioned earlier, as the photographer in the family, uh, was an, an avid lover of uh, the swing big band music. You know, it was the time of uh, Glenn Miller's music and those kinds of uh, songs. And uh, he he was in a band at the YMCA and they, they often played uh, in the lounge or it, once in a while in the auditorium. And my mother sang, uh, she was their singer, not every time, but she had a beautiful voice um, and sang to an audience of 800 people in the auditorium. Um, so she, they liked that sort of music. They, they were young people. It was the early 40s. And that was sort of the popular type of music that they enjoyed. So they were influenced by Western, Western music more so. They listened to Arabic songs too, but they did not perform them. Do you think your mother missed Jerusalem somehow? Oh, yes, all the time. She talked about it as though it was another person, you know. She talked about Jerusalem as though it was 
her best friend and she had missed she missed her best friend since she left in 1948 um and she would often say i want to go back home of course you know for her home was um jerusalem but it was also all the other homes she ended up losing in her life because she lost her home twice once to uh to the creation of the state of israel and then she lost her second home to the nationalization of Egypt in 1961. And, uh, and then she lost her Geneva home because we ended up living in Switzerland, in Geneva. She lost that when she had a stroke and was hospitalized and had to stay in a rehab center. She could not go back home. So when she used to say, I want to go home, and I'll share a little anecdote that's in my book, uh, she had to wear one of those um, little clip-ons um, that have a little red light at the end of it, and it's wrapped around the finger to measure the saturation, oxygen saturation levels. And so she had that taped on her finger, and occasionally she would want to have me touch that, the two of us uh, touch each other's pointers, and she would say, E.T., go home. Uh, and uh, it was so it was so endearing. That was my mother. You know, she thought of symbols. She thought of ideas. And even after the stroke, uh, she could fortunately still talk with the stroke. She couldn't move and she couldn't swallow very well. So she would say, E.T., go home. And we knew that home was everything, Jerusalem, Egypt, um, uh, and her home in Geneva. It's uh, fascinating and moving at the same time. I just have a couple of questions, uh, you know, before reaching the conclusion of this episode. I was curious about uh, this documentary that you mentioned, Jerusalem, We Are Here. And I was wondering if you can just uh, tell us more about it. Yes, for sure. I, I... I'll tell you what happened. Uh, I was approached by um, an Israeli-Canadian uh, uh, academic uh, who teaches at, at uh, uh, Queen's uh, University in Canada, Dorit Naman is her name, um, because she had heard that I knew a lot of families from Jerusalem, and she was starting this project uh, where she was focusing on the neighborhood of Katamon as, um, and, and looking back at certain houses, certain families, um, institutions that were there and um, doing it through um, Google Street View and using other uh, you know, technological pieces, which I didn't understand very well because I'm not uh, in film but she is a film um, professor. And so with that tool, uh, we were able, she asked me to be the, the English narrator in the documentary. It is interactive because people can join a tour and there's an Anwar who did the tour in English. I did it in, in, Ara I mean in Arabic and I did it in English. And people can choose tours that they can follow and I walk through the streets and talk to them. And then we get to a house, for instance, and either there's a video about 
that we took of the people who lived in that house, Palestinians, during the 30s or 40s, or we have an institution and we have some write-up about it, so or photographs. So you get the chance to, to view um, Katamon on several levels, the current streets through Google Street View and the, the level that is below it, historically, the level of Katamon uh, pre-1948. And I had amassed a number of photographs of um, houses in uh, Baka and Katamon and Talbiye that belonged to Palestinians pre-1948 um, with the help of an elderly man who pointed out this was the house of this family, this was the house of this man. I took pictures and documented those houses and put them on a Google map. Well, when Dorita invited me to join her, she asked if we could have then a, a, as a part of a Jerusalem, we are here, a remapping of Jerusalem and using my map and expanding it to include more and more dwellings and uh, biographical information. And this is what we did. And so now we have maybe 200 houses or more that have been identified on the map. And we encourage people, because it is an interactive process, to, to give us information that we could add or to provide us information with other houses which we haven't identified. So it's a really great tool because you're working with the past and the present and you're working with people who who can offer more information. It's it's a it's a so you know a social history at 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 its most uh, you know critical way because it it is incorporating the past and the present. Talking about the present, I was wondering what is your relationship with uh, modern-day Jerusalem? Well, I go to Jerusalem and visit it. I live in California, so it's a long ways, but I go regularly. Every uh, I used to go almost every year. Now I, I'm not with COVID, of course, traveling, but I, I have a relationship when I go there that I feel totally at home, even though I was not born there. I did not grow up there, but I am from there and I feel it. I feel it in every, every street I walk on, every stone building sort of has a piece of my history embedded in it. And it, uh, it is because my mother has so vividly described everything to me, skipping uh, you know, into Jaffa Gate to go see her grandmother who lived right behind the Greek Catholic Church in the old city. You know, I can just, you know, see all these things as though they were superimposed on, onto the modern Jerusalem. And I usually stay in the old city in the Armenian quarter. I have a friend who has a house that I can rent there. And I'm totally engulfed. You know, I hear those beautiful bells, church bells ringing. I hear the, the melodious sound of the muezzin calling people for to prayer and i feel as though you know i am living in the past um 
my mother would often say, stop living in my past. <laughs> and I would say, but your past was wonderful. You've created such a great image of it. But of course, there's the reality when I'm in today's Jerusalem, the reality of, uh, of, of the, the constant, um, the constant um, annexation and occupation of, uh, of Palestine, you know, and, uh, and all of that, of course, makes me very sad. Um, but I have so many other joyful memories, they overtake it. <laughs> One last question. Do you have any favorite spots when you wander around the city? Is there anything that you just uh, stare and makes you feel even more connected with the city? Something that brings you, you know, the wave of memories that you talked about? There are two places, if you'll allow me to, to share two. Uh, one is... Um, a staircase that goes up to the rooftops uh, of the street, uh, David Street or Bazaar Street, right above the, there where you're on top and see all the domes of the dwellings around. You have an amazing view of the city, uh, especially the Dome of the Rock. And um, I write in my book how when I am up there, I don't see any divisions because the sky is everyone's sky. It's not the Israeli sky or the Palestinian sky. And when I see those pigeons, there are a lot of homing pigeons in Jerusalem. I feel I am envious of their freedom because they can go anywhere. And um, we humans are rooted to where we stand. Um, and when I'm up there, I feel a sense of connectivity with the city, whether it's daytime or nighttime. Nighttime is even more beautiful. And in my book, I describe going up there uh, with my late husband and uh, enjoying that, that, that scene there. We felt totally at home when we were up there. The other one is when I sit in the Greek Catholic church, where, which was my mother's church. My mother's family was Greek Catholic. And uh, it's very—it's not very far from the the Greek Orthodox um, Patriarchate, um, and that church is filled with uh, floor-to-ceiling frescoes um, of uh, that are very brightly colored, um, modern-looking. So I'm not sure how long ago the church was renovated, but the the characters uh, are all from biblical stories. And the dome is, is gorgeous, if you ever see it. In my book, I have pictures of it. And, and it, shows, um, it shows you not only the beauty of, um, you, know, the, you know, I'm not a religious person in everyday life. I'm more of a spiritual person. But when I'm in there, I feel connected to that side of uh, Jerusalem, which is a, a place of worship for for the three monotheistic religions. And when I'm in there, I feel connected. It was my mother's church where she grew up. She sang in the choir. My grandmother's funeral was held there. There are all of these connections to the place. And so my being in that church um, awakens these deep uh, spiritual longings for the place and uh, the time. 
So these two places, I think, would be the two that I fo I would focus on as being two of my favorites. Thank you. Thank you for being a, a guest on Jerusalem Unplugged. Mona Jaralabi, I want to remind the listeners, the creator of the Facebook page, British Man, the Jerusalemites Photo Library, but more importantly, author of the upcoming book, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. Thank you, Mona. And to the listeners, you can follow us at all of uh, our uh, social media platform at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile any-weather staples, hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>